0: Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information
1: from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosin. Wonderful to be back with you. We've got a couple of interesting guests in the podcast today. We're going to be speaking shortly to Mark Lasser about the subject of audio described live theatre in the United States and his quest to make it more widely available particularly on broadway we'll hear from judy dixon a little bit later she's talking about a new book that she's just released through national rail press called the abundant bookshelf and if you're a reader then you may find a few interesting nuggets that you didn't know before even if you're quite an experienced reader on your iphone which is what this book is all about And then, well, if I was under any doubt about whether anybody listened to this podcast, I certainly am not anymore, we have received a huge number of comments on last week's podcast in which we replayed an interview that Tyra Briggs did with me on the Ability Stories podcast in which I talked about being a blind atheist. Now, we did receive some pretty nasty comments actually anonymously through the Mosin Consulting contact form. And some of the suggestions that were made in some of those anonymous comments are actually anatomically impossible, particularly since a podcast isn't a physical thing. So you can't really put a podcast anywhere if you get my drift we did receive some challenging and some supportive comments and so at the end of the podcast we will go through some of the comments if i read them all believe me we'd be here for hours so we'll just try and provide a representative sample of the comments that we've received so an action-packed podcast hope you enjoy it and now stories making news in the blind community on the blind side Right from when I was a child, one of my favorite movies is The Sound of Music. Now, don't judge. I love The Sound of Music. And when Christmas comes along, I still like to watch The Sound of Music. It's kind of like an annual tradition. And I had no idea how much I was missing out on with The Sound of Music, something that I know intimately, until... I heard an audio-described version of The Sound of Music a few years ago, and it was astounding to me. And so it could be that you're attending musicals. It could be the experience of a lifetime. You're going to Broadway, you're attending a musical. It's a big deal, but you may be missing out on an awful lot of the content if it's not audio-described. Well, someone who's taken on this issue when he wanted to attend the popular musical Hamilton on Broadway is Mark Lasser. He's a Denver resident, and he joins us. Welcome to The Blind Side. Mark, good to have you here. Hey,
0: Jonathan, thank
1: you. Give me a bit of background on this. How did this start?
0: Well, I should I should sort of start by saying that I have I was not born blind. I was sighted for most of my life and I lost my eyesight quite quickly. But at, when I was sighted, I used to go to New York once a year and I would almost always catch one or more plays or or musicals. And uh, after losing my eyesight, I discovered that you know, in smaller cities, you could get audio description with your plays. But when I went to New York, I would go to the theaters and ask about audio description. And they would just say they didn't have it, and they weren't going to have it. And uh, a couple months ago, I actually tried to get tickets for Hamilton and talked to the box office and requested audio description. And they just sort of said they've never heard of it. And when I explained what it was to them, they said, well, that's all very interesting. But no, we don't have that. And we don't have plans to introduce that,
1: and most people would probably have thought at that point, "Oh, okay, that's a pity. It's <laughs> pretty sad." You decided yeah. to take it on in this case and do something about it.
0: Yeah, I, I don't, I don't do back down very, very well. So I, uh, you know, I kind of wanted to, you know, to press forward. And I think it's not just for me. I recognize that if I back down, then there's someone else is going to have to step up, and they're going to have the same experience, and I'm not okay with that. So I pressed a lot further. I went and I contacted the producers of the show, and I contacted the theater, and I contacted the general manager, and um, the theater accessibility project in New York, and pretty much everybody I could think of. And the reactions just came back of a non-reaction. No one was really willing to move forward. So I eventually decided that, unfortunately, the only way to move the issue forward is was to do it through the legal system and um Hamilton was a show it's the most popular show in New York right now it's a very very hot ticket so it seemed um it was a show I wanted to see and it also seemed a very easy show to accomplish this with because they are on schedule to see revenues that will exceed 1 billion U.S. dollars so they certainly couldn't use cost as a as an excuse and um, the popularity of the show and the political nature of the show seemed like a very logical place to uh, get this accommodation. So right, because it the, would seem uh, consistent
1: when, with the values of Hamilton in some respects, wouldn't it? To to audio describe and be inclusive.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. It's a show that everybody you know wants to see, and I think that it's also really important as a blind community. We don't want to miss out on the cultural literacy. The world is seeing this show. We certainly don't want to be excluded from understanding and participating in this show at a measure of cultural literacy as well.
1: There is some audio description in live theater in the United States, though, isn't there?
0: There is. So when these shows tour, they often have audio description provided by local venues. I think that the the standard bearer maybe is Minneapolis-St. Paul, where they provide over 300 described shows per year, uh, here in Denver, where I live, we're pretty good. We get about fifty. Um, they're also pretty good about doing it on demand with a bit of notice. So if we ask our theater uh, with a, with two weeks notice to provide it, they, as far as I know, have always accommodated that, and they get a describer and the headsets ready. So we really don't miss out on anything. But New York is the is the mecca of theater in the United States. So you know there are thirty or thirty one Broadway theaters and other thirty. Or so off Broadway theaters, and that's really the cultural apex of where theater is happening. And I think it's really important that we be able to access those shows uh, in New York, um, because a lot of them actually will never tour. So you know, there's there's the fact that some of them won't tour, and there's also you are getting to see the original cast usually in New York during the early runs of the theater, and be sort of at the frontier of of where theater is.
1: You've obviously given some thought to the practicalities of this in the sense that if you're watching a movie or you're involved with a play where there's a lot of activity on the stage and you don't know what's going on because there's no dialogue, there's a slot, if you will, for the audio description to go into. In a musical, do you think there's a chance that there's nowhere for the additional audio description to go without it being a distraction to the enjoyment of the experience?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think it's certainly a challenge. Um, and it's been dealt with a couple of ways. And I, I also should point out, you know, we're in the infancy of this technology, right? I mean, you know, theater's been around since, you know, whatever, since the Greeks. And, you know, we're talking about this now just for a few years. So there'll be some figuring out that we experience as we go along. But one of the things we've done in shows that are very crowded with dialogue is to do more pre-show description. So the describer before the show can describe the sets, the costumes, the actors. Uh, the describer might get into what the set changes are going to be like or you know, just sort of try to get ahead of the show a little bit before it even starts. And then they can use some shorthands during the show. So in between the dialogue, they can get in a quick description. You know, Hamilton has just entered or even Hamilton enters. And we can use shorthands to get in there much more quickly. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the more crowded a show is with dialogue and music, the more difficult that is. But in a combination of pre-show and just getting those shorthands in there in between where you can, it's great. And I think that as a blind uh, audience member, we have our finger on a volume button and we have the headset. So if it comes a distraction, we can always just pull the headphone out of our ear or lower the volume. And we can control how much or how little we want of that description ourselves, which is great.
1: I'm sure there's a way around it, and with a bit of lateral thinking, it can be done. Recently, my wife and I went to see the Beatles Love Show in Vegas, and I'm a major Beatles fan, so this was quite a a profoundly spiritual experience for me to go to the Love Show and enjoy it. And I was conflicted because I loved just listening to the incredible mix that they had done, this this mash-up of all of the Beatles songs in this unique way. And it's all there in surround sound and just listening to it in this glorious surround sound and enjoying the mix was special. And yet I found myself wondering, what is the dance troupe doing up there? Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure how I can balance the enjoyment I was receiving from digging the music and the sense of being deprived that I felt through not being able to find out what the visuals were like.
0: Yeah, I I think that that's very valid. And I think like everything else that we experience in our lives, every individual is going to have a different perspective on what they want. And ultimately, giving us the control to independently determine what we want is, is paramount. So, some individual may want more description and some may want less. We're all going to be a bit different. But I think that it's up for each of us to be able to balance that for ourselves. But if we don't have the description, we can't magically add it. If we do have the description, it's much easier to just lower the volume or or take some away. Um, and then it's our choice of, of how to work with it. But I also think that it's um, – probably a little bit more imperative to have that description in a narrative show than it may be in a, a show like Love. Now, a show like Love, I would say we should still be able to have that description. But without the description, you're not going, there, there's not a storyline that you're just completely missing on. Where I notice things that really sort of get me feeling deprived of an experience is when I'm in a theatrical show and I notice that without the description, the entire audience is laughing. Mm. and i have no idea whatsoever that what they're laughing at and th- it, there's no feeling that sort of compares to not being in on the joke
1: and you sort of feel uh, like you have to laugh even though you don't know what you're laughing <laughs> at because otherwise you look like a bit of a nit sitting there not laughing the only, only person yeah. in the audience who isn't laughing
0: yeah that's so true that's so weird right but we we do i agree yeah. um so you know you want to be in on the joke you want to be in on you know you want to be in on the gasp i mean when everybody you know is obviously taken aback by something and I I, without some audio description, you're you are you're right. You're just sort of, you know, you're pantomiming this sort of fake, uh, you know, reaction, but not knowing what it is. So, I I think especially for theater, you know, we need to know those bits of what's going on in between the dialogue.
1: We have a bit of a joke outside of the United States that's kind of like, well, you know, you're going to get sued because it's the American way. I'm really interested in the process when you decided that you weren't going to take this. Um, no, sorry, we, we don't have this and we don't have any plans to have it for an answer. W- what's the process for taking it further? How have you initiated this lawsuit and where do you expect it to go from here?
0: Well, I initiated it by contacting an attorney that deals specifically with disabilities and he's worked on a number of other disability cases with violations of the ADA. And so I Which is the Americans with
1: Disabilities Act for those outside of uh, the states who may not be familiar with that.
0: Yes, thank you. And so we he then took it to a New York attorney who suggested that this be a class action. A class action essentially says that the violation that we're experiencing here does not just affect the individual, but affects an entire class of individuals. In this case, the class of individuals would be blind and visually impaired people. I think in New York City a lot of theater goers are a bit older. And uh, that certainly affects a lot of seniors who may have macular degeneration, glaucoma, different um, eye conditions that affect the visual ability to inser- interpret a show. So, you know, what we're really doing here is we're 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 trying to make the case so that we can then, you know, press it out to the rest of the Broadway theaters. I mean, it's not specifically about Hamilton. It's really about theater, all theater, um, you know, especially Broadway theater in New York. And, and getting that to be accessible to every single person. So I have no desire for this to go to court. I have the desire to fix the problem. So I hope that now that we've raised this, the, the producers of the show and the owners of the theater will agree with uh, our point and see what we're trying to do. And they will ultimately – make it accessible. And, and, and really, not just for, for blind people, but also for deaf people. Um, we'd like to see them do open captioning and closed captioning and uh, interpretive sign language when available. The legal process is one where we can just say, look, we, we've reached out, everybody's talked, and we're not really getting to a solution. So let's see what the law says. And we'll now let the legal system sort of work work through it to to get us to the outcome.
1: Does this kind of action cost the instigator of that action money or does the lawyer who takes this kind of stuff on expect to be remunerated if the case is successfully concluded
0: Yeah the the latter is definitely the case you know if if any other individuals listening are thinking about doing this and the attorney is asking for money up front um you should certainly talk to a different attorney uh, you know there there's no upfront fee on my part with this the attorneys are doing this um uh, essentially pro bono, with with the expectation of of recouping their their expenses if the case is either settled or goes to court and won. If for some reason we were to not to win, they would all they would all be out their time and they wouldn't be paid. So if it does go to trial and we do win, they can actually ask for their legal expenses to be paid by the the other party, but but not by the person who initiates the legal action.
1: Have you received support from? Others in the blind community, because I, I found out about this. We, we scan various news sources to get story leads for the blind side. And this is actually getting quite a bit of publicity. It was in the Wall Street Journal and various other places. Don't read the comments. That's my mantra. But anyway, <laughs> um, so I wonder whether yeah. other people have responded to this and, and how, what kind of feedback you're getting.
0: They have, uh, you know. Obviously, you, you, I agree with you. Don't read the comments <laughs> Don't read the comments. It sort of like reminds me of like Apocalypse Now. Never get off the boat, right? Yeah. But yeah. the uh, support has been great. It's you know what's interesting. One of the first groups of people where it got passed around really quickly, where I started hearing support, was the describer community. Actually, the sighted people who do the, who do description for a living, they're really excited by this. They were they've been trying to get this done on Broadway and have been frustrated by it for quite a while. And the word about this spread like wildfire in that community right away, which is kind of fun. It's a really fun group of people. I've gotten to know some of them, you know, amongst, you know, other communities, you know, just, you know, theater fans and, and blind people. Yeah. The support's been generally really, really good. I think that there is a knee jerk reaction sometimes to lawsuits that people sort of cringe. But I think once people realize how much effort was made to get this done before ever even thinking about legal action, people pretty quickly come around and and are, are very supportive.
1: And the thing is, if it's concluded that these very wealthy enterprises are breaking the law, why the hell not?
0: Sure. You know, I mean, my objective, you know, and hope is that we get to the point where this isn't even something we think much about and we just will assume that if we want to see a show there will be accessible performances you know ideally on demand but but certainly on a regular scheduled basis and that you know 5 or 10 years from now uh you know some kid who's growing up and decides to go to the theater will not even know that there was a time when this wasn't available they'll they'll just assume that they have the right to full access and participation in this like everybody else and they, they will not even know that we went through this fight.
1: And that's an important point that we haven't covered, so we should cover that. You are not suggesting that every performance has to be audio described.
0: No, although there, there's certainly, we certainly like that. Uh, you know, if, 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 if we get to the point where that's technically possible, that would be great. Certainly the interim solution is that every show have regularly available, scheduled, accessible performances. Um, So that we know is quite attainable immediately. When I first talked with the the folks that produced Hamilton, because of how big a show it was and how successful it was, I sort of liked the idea that maybe we could find someone who could participate in the show as a describer who would always be there, just like they always have assistant managers or stagehands. It could be the assistant stage manager who gets trained to do description on demand, because they're always there at every performance
1: or any um, number of understudies, it, I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. could be understudies yeah. and standby yeah. performers so that there's always someone around who, who would have the script, who would know how to do the description. And if someone walked up to the ticket booth an hour before the show and said, Oh, by the way, I'm I'm a blind person who would like to have audio description. Um, the house would, the house manager for the theater would let them know. And they would say, yeah, that's great. Let me get a headset. And that's all there would be. I mean, theoretically there's no reason we couldn't do that and and that would that would be a great objective
1: i suppose also there may be some technical issues with this but generally performance is always run similarly so you could have a pre-recorded audio description soundtrack that somebody simply makes sure is in sync
0: depends on the show so there is a company in new york who's doing this for older more established shows where they've invested in that technology wicked and The Lion King are, are two shows that provide just that. It's, it's a pre-recorded description and it's set to work with the technical cues of the show, the lighting cues and the set cues. But these are very complicated shows that have complicated sets and complicated transitions that must be fairly predictable. And so in that kind of a show, yeah, that the technical capability of automation is there. But if you're doing you know an Arthur Miller play or you're doing a new musical that where where people haven't worked out all the kinks to that um sorry there's a there must be a squirrel in the background <laughs> um, the uh the um you know for 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 shows that are not particularly technical and haven't really worked out those kinds of cues, I think that the live describer is still probably the the best method for delivering the description.
1: So how long this takes from here, I guess, very much depends on the willingness of the parties to come to the table.
0: Yeah. I mean, we love nothing better than for, there's two really big groups in New York that that control much of the theater. We'd love these groups to sort of take a leadership position and role and um, just not just ask, well, what's the minimum we have to do to comply? But could we just completely reframe this and instead look at this and say, how do we lead the world in accessibility and do everything we can to deliver this in a very holistic way so that everybody else looks at us and says, well, look, this is this is the way they do it. We should all be doing this. That that would be great.
1: We'll watch this with considerable interest and perhaps get you back on the podcast if there are developments to talk about. So thanks for joining us. I really appreciate that.
0: Oh, my pleasure, Jonathan. Anytime.
1: Our place, our issues, The Blind Side with Jonathan Mosin. It wasn't that long ago that we had to wait for special formats producers to make the latest bestseller available. It wasn't really possible for us to sit around the water cooler and talk with our co-workers or friends and neighbours about the book that everybody was reading, unless we scanned that book ourselves and that took a bit of expensive equipment. Well, things have really changed now and we have... What Judy Dixon has called the Abundant Bookshelf, and there's no shortage of places that we can go now to read all kinds of books from the latest bestsellers to the classics. And Judy, in her very clear style, has put a book together on the Abundant Bookshelf, which is available now from National Braille Press. And Judy Dixon joins me. Welcome back to the podcast, Judy. Always good to talk to you.
2: Thank you, Jonathan. Great to be here.
1: What inspired this idea?
2: Well, it seemed to be a topic that hadn't been covered much. And uh, of course, working in a library environment, I'm uh, interested in books and, and surrounded by books, and I think about books a lot. And the fact that I personally began using my iPhone for pretty much all of my book consumption, whether it be audio or Braille, I thought this is a topic that needs some discussion because it's not simple. And yet it is, there's so much there and it's really, it's really a wonderful one. So it may not be quite as whiz bang and new technology as some of the other topics we might talk about, but it, but it is a hole that needed filling.
1: It definitely is. I get a consistent number of inquiries from customers of ours at Mosin Consulting about these things that people know that you can read the latest bestseller from iBooks or Kindle. But for whatever reason, some people don't find that a very intuitive process or they want further clarification. And so you do cover a wide range of applications, including a few little neat tricks. For example, some people don't realize how easy it is to get a PDF document or a range of other documents into the Kindle app. And so you cover all of these things.
2: Yes, the fun part of this book was just figuring out how to slice and dice the whole topic. And the book is divided into four major chapters. The first one being reading books narrated by humans, because a lot of people still prefer to do that. And then within each chapter or within most of the chapters, I divided it into mainstream apps and special purpose apps that have specifically been created for blind users, And the reason why I did that is I I think it's not that apps created by blind users are more accessible and and sometimes they certainly are, but I think we have higher expectations for apps made specifically for blind users. And that's something that uh, I think was, was relevant. So in the, in the chapter on books narrated by humans, in the mainstream apps, it was obviously Audible, and thats they have a lovely accessible app now. It's really very nice. And then Overdrive, which I put in because a lot of people, especially in the U.S., although it is available outside the U.S. as well, but a lot of people in the U.S. can get books from their public library. So they're free, human-narrated books from Overdrive, Overdrive is not the easiest app to use, and I'm hoping to encourage Overdrive to improve it, but it's still, it, it's usable. It's just a little bit rough going. And then in the apps for blind users, of course, there's Bard Mobile and Learning Ali, I don't. I never know how to say it's, this. It's Ally.
1: I understand, yeah, because uh, <laughs> I've been involved in some pronunciation changes with that's concerned with synthesizers. So it's Ally, yeah. <laughs>
2: Every screen reader says it differently. Like learning Ally, learning learning Ally. I guess yeah, yeah learning yeah. Ally Link, which is their their new app. Those are the main ones for reading human narrated books. And then reading ebooks with synthetic speech again I broke it out into mainstream apps and one specifically for blind users and I obviously it was iBooks and Kindle and nook and and for the most part those apps pretty much cover the same waterfront there's there's uh, some differences but but they're similar and you really have to pick those by what features do you like the best what features would you really want to Want to use? Then there's Voice Dream Reader, and Voice Dream Reader is a bit of an outlier, and and probably shouldn't necessarily have been. And as a matter of fact, I start out in talking about Voice Dream Reader by saying uh, this app developer has put so much effort into the accessibility of this app. It's hard to remember that it's not an app made for blind users. He's he's been on so many podcasts. And he's been at so many blindness conferences. We think of this app as one that that, but it made for blind users. But it's not. It's really a mainstream app, and it's it's pretty impressive. It has some amazing features. It's if your listeners haven't played with Voice Dream Reader, I would highly encourage them to because it can do really really useful things. It's uh, it's kind of a a great cross between an audio playback device and an ebook device, and it kind of grabs the best of of both of those. And then apps created for blind users, in this case, it would be Read2Go, which is the Bookshare app. And the third chapter takes a somewhat different approach. It's reading books in Braille. And this was fun because there's reading Braille books in Braille, which would be BARD Mobile. So that's reading formatted, contracted Braille content with a Braille display. And then reading print books in Braille, and how you might use a Braille display to read, um, learning, Ally, iBooks, Kindle, Nook. And then what what you need to do and what that's, what the experience is like. And they're all usable. They're all books. You can read books in Braille, and it works quite well. I struggled for a while to figure out how to explain the differences. And it was reading print books in Braille and reading Braille books in Braille, which mm. finally, uh Made sense to me, and and was suggested by Anna Dresner actually, and and she was absolutely right. And, and then you have then one last- final
1: chapter that's kind of you have a whole of little nuggets in there that I didn't know about.
2: And that's the idea. It's it's nuggets for people who already know a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I actually looked at oh probably well over a hundred apps, and I selected fourteen. And some of them were there because how could you possibly have a book about books and not include X app, things like fan fiction and Goodreads and Google Play and so forth. And then some of them are a little bit more obscure. Some of them are more accessible than others, but they all they all contribute something.
1: Out of the two, I guess, major, so I guess you could count Nook as well, but I think a lot of people are using iBooks and Kindle. Do you have a strong preference as to which of those two providers you like to use?
2: Depends on if I'm reading the book with speech or Braille. Um, If I'm reading it with Braille, I'll go to iBooks. Uh, I I like the Braille reading experience better, the way, way you can flow from page to page, and it's a smoother reading experience. Kindle has different features, and it probably has just a little bit more flexibility if you're going to read it with speech but so it it kind of i I use both and uh, and I don't have i but I realize in thinking about it if i'm if I'm planning to read the book in Braille, I will go to iBooks.
1: I suppose the purchasing process is just a little bit simpler on iBooks because you can do it all from within the app. but one of the things That's I really true. do enjoy about Kindle is the way they've now synced up. With Audible, so not only can you play the Audible title if you buy both at the same time and they give you a discount, but it actually syncs within the Audible app as well. So you can go back mm-hmm. to your Audible app and pick up with the human narration from where you left off reading in the Kindle book, and that's pretty slick stuff, really.
2: You can do the same thing with your uh, Amazon Echo.
1: Yes, indeed, you can. You,
2: can. <laughs> you can read for a while with your Echo. You can read for a while with your iPhone. You can just go back. You know, keep going from device to device.
1: And of course, if you have one of those inexpensive Kindle Fire tablets, you can pick it up on there. So they've got it really well organized in that regard. You talk about VoiceStream, and I also use VoiceStream as an MP3 player. I quite often import MP3 files into VoiceStream, and you can zip them up if you bring in an MP3 file that contains multiple MP3s in zip format. And they're in sequential order, so they're numbered. Then you can actually skip back and forward. It's almost like a Daisy book. So he's done an outstanding job with the features in that in that app.
2: He really has done an amazing job with that app. It's it's really quite fun to use. I use it anytime I have an EPUB. Every time I buy one of your books, Jonathan, I I read it with Voice Reader because it's it's the one my my preferred app for EPUBs.
1: Yeah, now I don't know whether um, it's fair for me to ask you to briefly change hats here, but I did notice how excited you were about the Bookshare interface in VoiceStream. And every so often I get people saying to me, do you think that NLS will ever have a similar API type function so that you could be in VoiceStream and search for titles from Bad?"
2: We have actually talked to um, Mr. Chen about Incorporating uh, the the Bard API into Voice Dream Reader, he was interested. There are um, technological complexities uh, for doing it, and the the biggest one being the fact that our books are in AMR Wideband Plus, and it means that the developer has to pay the licensing fee for every app. That they release with AMR wideband plus capability. Some developers think it's worth it and, and choose to go ahead with it, and, and some don't. And I think, I think Mr. Chen decided it was uh, a little bit too complicated.
1: It's interesting because Winston actually has a, a model that would fit with that. Uh, you, he has a whole bunch of voices that you can purchase optionally as in-app purchases. So I would imagine that for because somebody like me in New Zealand who doesn't have access to BARD wouldn't necessarily want to see the price of the app inflate for Americans right. who want uh, BARD support. But you could potentially make that AMR wideband codec downloadable as an in-app purchase, I would think, for those who wanted it.
2: Yeah, I don't know the, the technical aspects of doing that, whether that's possible or it I just know that he did choose not to pursue it. So I uh I think if people are really interested in having Bard support within Voice Dream Reader, let him know.
1: Yeah. It's really great to step back. I say this sometimes to people in the industry have been around a while like us, but it's great to step back and think how far we've come, isn't it? I mean, it's just just to have all this stuff in your pocket, the volumes and volumes of braille that we now can carry around. It's it's wonderful how quickly we've advanced.
2: I think about that all the time. It's amazing when I I mean, <laughs> you know, and now people start talking about the olden days and they're really talking about 20 years ago when, <laughs> when, when we still had computers and, you know.
1: <laughs> what do you think this means for the future of accessible formats? Because you get organizations like the DAISY Consortium, for example, uh, talking about the book famine. And, of course, there's been a lot of very important work done on the Marrakesh Treaty. But what does this Mean ought we to be placing more emphasis, perhaps, on the affordability of these mainstream devices for the blind community, rather than focusing on the book famine? Or do you think there's somehow some way that those two notions can coexist?
2: I think mainstream devices. I mean, you look at look at um, the Kindle tablets, for example. You know, mainstream devices, and that one particular is unlikely to get much cheaper you know a, a person can now get a tablet for $39 us and read Kindle books quite nicely and and they're all there i I worry more about the actual reading experience because as as cool as it is to get the latest book on Kindle and read it with your $39 tablet I personally don't think that that, anywhere near approaches the reading experience of a bard mobile for example and a human narrated book it just doesn't and so i i worry a little bit about what the positioning of special format special produced material i mean you know when will people who are so used to synthetic speech and are so used to manipulating things the way one must in a kindle kind of app you know when will they think well this is all just fine and i'm happy to consume my books that way and i don't need bard mobile i don't need human narration i don't need to skip around and in 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 the way that i can with bard mobile i don't know i i think i think that day will come
1: that, i'm afraid that's- that to me at least for fiction content and I have a month off during the glorious New Zealand summer where I don't do any work at all. And I do an awful lot of reading. I, I would have read probably three dozen or more books in that time. And I did a bit of an experiment. And uh, one of my favorite authors is David Baldacci, and I had a bit of catching up to do. And uh, within Kindle, I got the narrated version and the Kindle version. And the, narrator ver- the narrated version, they just frustrate me now. And even with fiction, I find that I would far rather crank my speech up and read that way. (laughs) And I don't want the human narration. I find the human narration an encumbrance. Even if I speed it up, I still prefer – it's almost a subconscious process. I don't notice the text-to-speech engine. My brain is interpreting those words and the personality of the characters. I'm making those subconscious extrapolations from the speech. Now, I realize I'm a minority there, so I'm not saying that somehow my way is the right way. But what I'm saying is there obviously are others like me who are functioning in that way now and who <clears throat> actively choose not to go with human narration.
2: I think it's true. And, and there's a there's a great correlation between age and <laughs> and preference for human narration. And I think that there's going to come a time when uh, those of us who prefer human narration are going to just simply disappear.
1: <laughs> I, I wonder whether that's true. Do, do you think? Do you think there was an age related thing there? I do. I
2: do. I. I mean, maybe, maybe it's not true, but i I believe it. I believe it's age related. Well, it's also experience-related, and the younger people have more experience with synthetic speech because they've been using it in schools. I remember having a conversation several years ago now, probably five or six years ago now. Um, I'm terrible at thinking something happened just the other day, and really it happened two years ago. (laughs) But uh, I had a conversation with a student services office person at the University of Michigan, and she told me that the students blinds, they had 50 blind students at the time, and the students there weren't using human narrated books from Learning Ally anymore. They were all, the student service office just scanned the books and every kids wanted them in synthetic speech and that's yeah. that. Now, I understand there's some good reasons for that. If you're a student, you want to speed it up, you want to search it, you want to do all those things that you can't do with human narrated speech. But once you get used to consuming your human narrated speech material and your brain starts processing it in the way that your brain does, I, I can see that it's a it's a relatively small leap to taking in fiction that way.
1: One thing I will say, though, is that here in New Zealand, and perhaps this is a a scenario unique to smaller countries, I I very seldom use our special format library in New Zealand, except that there are a number of New Zealand titles that have been recorded by the library over the years, and they are not available in any other book repository. So that's the only way that I can get at them accessibly.
2: Well, that's about... The idea of getting books from wherever we can get them—you know—identify the book and and then find the source. And uh, there's something everywhere.
1: Yeah, and I think that's particularly an issue that's going to come up for services such as those in the UK, in Canada, in New Zealand, where. There is not a huge amount of government funding for special format services. And increasingly, donors are going to be saying, why should we donate to keep these services alive? And perhaps the providers themselves, when they're faced with tough strategic decisions uh, with scarce resources, might say, why should we keep these services alive? So I think it's important for us to have a real good think about what the future of special format production is going to be in this mainstream era. I agree. So, the book is called The Abundant Bookshelf, and it's available from National Bayer Press at nbp.org. And uh, it's, a, it's a nice little read. What about uh, 15,000 words, I think? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. Excellent stuff. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and having a chat with us. I hope people check this book out because even if you're a seasoned reader with these technologies, you may just find one or two. Little helpful hints you didn't know before. And certainly I found a whole bunch of great little apps I'm checking out tucked away in the final chapter. So I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you. Feel the need to sound
0: off. Share your thoughts about this week's show by email, send an audio file, or
1: write it down and email the blindside atmosin.org.
3: Hi Jonathan, this is easy Horn, and I wanted to take a moment to take a bit of umbrage with something that you did in this past week's edition of the podcast. Now, I, like hundreds of thousands of other people, tend to completely rely on you for technology information, and as you say in the, well, the, the big voice says in the opening, news and information from a blindness perspective. But I have to ask, is it really fair of you to, number one, make yourself the subject of the podcast. I and mean, you would not have found Edward Armourer or, or Walter Cronkite doing something like that. And believe it or not, within the community, you hold that level of trust. I mean, point out that there is one. If we want to go listen to it, we can. But much more importantly, to, within the opening little monologue, tell what is, whether you like to you know think of it this way or not, The vast majority of your audience That our deepest held belief system Is wrong Now I realize that it is your podcast And you can say literally anything that you want But it is also The people who listen to it Who make it a viable Source of Income, revenue, or information However you choose to look at it So is it really fair to broach a subject that, again, for I would dare say the vast majority, is so deeply held and so real? It would be, and this is not an exaggeration, like one of us walking up to you and saying, Bonnie is the stupidest, most ridiculous human being on the planet, and not expecting you to be upset or angry by it. Because for those of us who do believe it, there is a vast majority of us who do. There are innumerable evidences in the scientific world, in the secular world, all over the place, that these things are very real. And then, of course, there are our own personal experiences. And discounting them does absolutely nothing but alienate a large segment of your listenership. There's the saying, of course, that one of the major issues among friends that should never, ever, ever be discussed is religion. The other is politics. You've done both in the last month and a half on the podcast. Is that really fair when we come here looking for news about things that affect us as a community, not a personal opinion.
1: Thanks for the comment. It seems you're taking some umbrage because the podcast isn't what you would personally like it to be. So I want to take some time to talk about the history of this podcast, The Blind Side, and also put it in the context of other work that I've done throughout the years. When I worked in radio full time, some of the shows I did included call in shows and also political interview shows. So I loved grilling the politicians of the day, making sure that we actually got some facts out of them. It was great. And I think that interviews of that nature in New Zealand, Australia and the UK tend to be quite a bit more combative than they have been traditionally in the US, although I see in the light of the Trump administration that climate does appear to be changing. Twice in my life, I've also sought election to New Zealand's parliament. You'll be relieved to know that um, not sufficient people voted for me for that to happen. Even before ACB Radio, I hosted the first global call-in show for blind people called Blindline. Many people will remember that. It goes all the way back to 1999. And Blindline discussed a wide range of issues. Many of them were technology-related, but many of them were not. One of the initiatives I'm most proud of during my online work was a temporary internet radio station I set up in March of 2003, which was called the Broadcast for Peace, where I and a few other concerned people hosted radio shows comprising political interviews and appropriate music to protest the illegality of the invasion of Iraq that was about to come. Incidentally, your comment very much reminds me of some of the pushback that I got During that broadcast for peace phase where people of a certain political persuasion in the United States seemed to have a view that the first amendment only applies until someone says something they strongly disagree with, then suddenly it doesn't apply anymore. That broadcast for peace showed me that sometimes you have to stand up for what you believe to be right. As I look back and history has unfolded the way it has, I'm very, very proud that I had the courage of my convictions and set up that radio station. On various other internet radio shows that I've hosted over the years, I've expressed opinions and provided forums for others to express theirs, hopefully in a climate of dialogue where everyone gets a fair hearing. On social media, I often express opinions. My Twitter followers, now exceeding 4,000, all know from my tweets that I'm an atheist. I make no secret of it, and why should I? It's something I'm extremely proud of. I've read and thought and meditated and discussed it a lot. When I started The Blind Side, it originally aired on Mushroom FM, but we soon found that people wanted to consume this kind of content in podcast form, so here we are. As the page for this podcast makes very clear... Not all of the issues that we cover are blindness-related, but where there's a blindness angle, we'll amplify it. While we cover technology sometimes on this podcast, I've never claimed it would be exclusively about technology. There are plenty of exclusively technology-related podcasts in the blind community, and many of them are very well done. This podcast is for people who see technology as one particular means to an end, one tool in the toolbox. This podcast is for people who want to explore many aspects of the way blindness impacts our lives, technology being just one. You ask if it's, quote, fair, unquote, to make myself the subject of this podcast and then make comparisons with U.S. newscasters and reporters who lived in a different era. I'm very flattered by the comparisons, by the way, so thank you for them. Let me deal with the question of fairness first. I subscribe to many podcasts where the person hosting them has a high profile in their community. For example, a podcast I highly recommend for those interested in atheism in the United States is the Thinking Atheist podcast hosted by Seth Andrews, who's a former broadcaster from Christian radio. Like me, Seth gets many people asking him for podcast interviews. If he thinks the podcast interview has gone particularly well, he'll cross-post the podcast to his own podcast feed. That's just one example. There are plenty of precedents for this kind of sharing. Even if there weren't, it's my judgment that Tara Briggs did a superb job of discussing what is, particularly in the United States, as your comment testifies, a hot topic. The interview discusses blindness-specific angles on atheism, including the idea some Christians have that blind people would be cured if only they had a better relationship with God. So I made the judgment that my audience would likely find it challenging or at least thought-provoking. Even without all that rationale, the simple answer to your question is this. What's, quote, fair, unquote, for this podcast is what I, as its financial backer, host, and producer, decide that it is. Every week, I spend many hours putting this podcast together. I have various searches via RSS and social media on blindness issues. If something catches my attention as a good podcast subject, I must try and find how to get hold of the person to interview. We find a mutually convenient time, assuming they're willing to go ahead with the interview, and not all do. We record the interview, and then I edit that interview. Then I do all the things that need to be done to get a podcast of decent quality out the door. Then I upload the podcast and it comes to you. I upload it to podcast hosting that I pay for out of my own pocket. I don't charge you for it. You make mention of revenue in your comment, but I wonder where you think that revenue comes from. I often mention Mushroom FM on this podcast. Mushroom FM doesn't play commercials – It has no sponsorship. It's another project that I completely fund myself because it makes me happy to do it. It gives me pleasure knowing that we provide a service that gives others pleasure. It's true, we sometimes talk about Mosin Consulting products on the podcast and doing so may well generate a little bit of revenue from those who haven't already heard about them from some other means. My educated estimate is, is that any revenue we do derive in no way matches the cost of my time and the hosting. So I do this podcast because I love a good conversation and a respectful debate. I need to make money to put food on the table and pay the mortgage, and I have various means of doing that. But I also love volunteering. I love giving back. I host the kind of podcast I would like to listen to myself because I like my beliefs being challenged constructively particularly when new evidence I wasn't aware of before emerges. By way of example, we have a history of heart disease in my family. Both of my parents have had quintuple heart bypasses. They actually had them within a day of each other. That's pretty stressful. So as I entered middle-aged, I started to get pretty consumed by how to avoid having a heart attack myself and getting into that kind of predicament. And when I pick up a topic, I tend to get quite voracious about studying it. And I used to think that the way to minimize my risks of heart disease was to ensure that the calories I consumed were less than the calories that I burned and to eat plenty of low-fat products. Then I stumbled upon an increasing body of literature and podcasts that convinced me that that's actually the approach that's been killing us. After a lot of reading and listening, I was completely convinced by all of the evidence. I went low-carb, and in combination with the great workouts my Apple Watch has inspired me to do, I'm now 27 kilograms lighter. That's about 60 pounds, and I feel fantastic. Now, the point of this story is, is that this podcast is going to appeal to the inquisitive among us. You saying that we shouldn't have covered atheism because most people aren't atheists is no different from saying that podcasters shouldn't talk about low-carb eating because the majority, including many governments, still endorse the low-fat lifestyle. The majority are not always right. And if you're confident in your beliefs, nothing will or should shake them. If your heart and mind are open to some new information, it can change your life for the better. Now I want to talk briefly about Walter Cronkite. You may have seen clips of him announcing the death of JFK or covering the Apollo 11 moon landing. But Walter Cronkite also went to Vietnam. He told Americans what was really going on there, despite the discomfort and the anger of the Johnson administration. And he said that Vietnam was a stalemate, He's one of the people who is most credited for changing Americans' perceptions of the Vietnam War. So Walter Cronkite did not simply read the news. And I would also point out that since Walter Cronkite died in 2009 at the age of 92, it's fair to say his active years predated the podcast era by quite some time. Media and methods continue to move on. You compare me respectfully expressing a different point of view on whether there is a creator or not with you insulting my wife. I don't believe this is a comparison that stands up so well because I'm not aware of anyone who's heard of Bonnie who doesn't believe that she exists. Even if there were such people, I could provide ample, demonstrable evidence that she does. When a bunch of people are in a room with Bonnie, they see her if they have working eyeballs – They will agree on roughly how tall she is, the color of her hair, what she's wearing at the moment. When she speaks, everyone agrees on what it is that she said. Therefore, the fact that Bonnie is a real, breathing, living human being is not in dispute. In last week's podcast, we were discussing whether there is a personal God, a creator, who created this whole universe and can do anything he likes. I don't believe in that hypothesis, and I further believe that the balance of evidence is strongly tipped to that particular side. If people didn't have the integrity and the courage to challenge majority opinions, we'd still think that the world was flat. The Catholic Church persecuted and placed under house arrest the brilliant Galileo Galilei simply for rightfully observing that the earth moves around the sun. They made him recant his theory because they saw it as in contradiction to scripture. Remaining silent in the face of majority opinion just because you're in the minority is how tyrants have their way and how our species will stagnate. You may well perceive that you have a personal relationship with something you call God, and that by my denying his existence, I'm therefore somehow insulting you personally by insulting your friend. But religion is the only area that I can think of where we're somehow expected to be tolerant of something that makes no sense and for which the evidence is scans at best. I may believe with all my heart that I have a million dollars buried in a box in my garden. The fervence and passion with which I hold that belief does not constitute evidence that it's true. Also, as a dad to four kids, I can tell you that sometimes, depending on the child and how far it goes, there comes a time where kids' imaginary friends need to be reined in. I have no difficulty whatsoever with people having imaginary friends or things to lean back on that help them get through life, but it becomes a matter worthy of speaking out about, in my view, when we get to the point where extremists of various religious faiths can gain access to nuclear or chemical weapons and use them to bring about end-times prophecies. I want to live, and I want my kids and their kids to live. I want us to evolve in an age of reason and tolerance. In communication, broadly speaking, there are two elements, what the communicator says and how it's received. In the case of this podcast, I can only control the first part. If you perceive somebody expressing a different worldview from you as a personal insult, then that's how you've personally chosen to perceive it. Let's say that someone did insult Bonnie, claiming, to use your words, that she's the stupidest, most ridiculous human being on the planet. In that case, the situation is reversed. I'm responsible for how I receive that communication, how I process it, whether I hold on to it, what I do with it. Someone else's view doesn't change my own personal experience of her considerable intellect, the interest she has in the world around her, her profound kindness and warmth. So why would I get angry about it? I'd simply conclude that that person is mistaken and misinformed, probably that they're not someone who I care to spend too much time with and move on, sound in the knowledge of my facts. One thing I can promise you, though, this podcast will continue to cover issues beyond technology, including politics, and if it comes up again and seems relevant, religion as well. So I think in the context of this podcast, you have the choice either to not listen to it or be more tolerant of exposure to different worldviews. Here's a written email now to the mosen.org, And the subject is you were getting the blind side off to a spectacular start. It comes from Becky Skipper. Hi, Becky. She says, first, happy new year. You certainly needed a month off to gear up for what I would consider to be a very difficult episode. Atheism isn't something you can talk about easily in America, and if I could, I would gladly move to New Zealand. Your society is very enlightened, and I hope it continues to remain so. Ironically, those who question the existence of God act better than those who believe in God. I appreciate the merits of humanism, marvel at what science shows us, and enjoy watching Star Trek, so I almost gave up my Christian faith entirely. I strongly dislike conservative Christianity, and I suspect this is what you have been exposed to. However, please understand that I'm not trying to condone what people have done in the name of Christianity. In fact, it is horrific. If you are so inclined, please check out the work of Gregory Boyd. And Becky gives a URL for this. It's www.renew.org. Now, it's spelled I-E-K-N-E-W. So it's www.reknewrenew.org I'm not suggesting that you become a Christian again, but I credit his podcasts for saving my faith. I just hope you can take a moment to see how other Christians interpret the world. Like you, I do not like it when churches think someone who is blind needs healing. I try to avoid most of them altogether. I think you will find that some in the faith community have the courage to call Christians to task for their hypocrisy. I view the Old Testament as a historical account and do not take everything literally. Some would say that that is heresy, and I'm glad I'm not living in the 14th century, but let me explain. There is a concept called open theism that says God knows all of the infinite possibilities in our lives and in the future. What we do determines which path opens up. Some believe, as I do, that God doesn't cause suffering. Some blame this on Satan. I choose to believe that God doesn't stop the evolutionary process, and I think he uses our suffering to help us grow. Even parents can't stop all forms of suffering, and I still sometimes wish God would intervene more directly. I'm not in a position to determine why he doesn't, I can only comfort myself by saying that I believe time is not a fixed property and that God knows how the universe works far more than scientists. It is a gift to discover new things and embrace science because that gives us a glimpse into how the universe works and that can be humbling. Maybe heaven is a fifth dimension, but I'm struck by the fact that you treat death in much the same way as a Christian minus the afterlife part. It is healthier, in my view, to enjoy this life. I look at life this way. When I die, if I go to heaven, then I'll take the next step. If I die and there is nothing, I'll know that I lived a good life anyway. Ironically, my fascination with science makes me question everything, to the point where if I can't prove or disprove anything, I'll use my gut feeling. My gut feeling is that God could conceivably exist in ways we can't observe, just as other forms of energy. Yes, there are parts of the Bible I do not take literally, but Jesus' parables are my moral compass, along with some interpretations from Greg Boyd. You've no doubt read the Bible more than I have, and you also appear to have more knowledge of the U.S. political system. Yet your humility and willingness to think about new things impresses me. I appreciate that. Yes, I get tired of constantly educating and even resent it at times. However, I've come to learn that the human connection does have beautiful moments, like your podcast today. It's a really great message. Thank you very much, Becky. And I promise you that I will go and check out that uh, podcast resource that you gave us at renew, R-E-K-N-E-W org, because I love reading about this stuff. Let's just do a couple more from the big pile. This one says, thanks for revealing interview with Tyra Briggs. And it's from Peter Dodge. He says it's all too sunny in Miami, Florida. Very nice for you. Jonathan, thank you for posting your interview by Tyra Briggs on the blind side. I consider myself an agnostic, not quite an atheist. I guess all that means is that I think even if there is no creator deity, there still may be intelligence much more highly evolved than us. Sometimes I'd really like to hope so, Peter, yeah. But no one to pray to for intercession. We are alone on this planet and responsible for it. By we, I guess I should include all living things. You mentioned that you meditate and find it very helpful. If you have a teacher or even fellow meditator, I think it would be great for you to interview on the blind side. I would not think there is much difference in meditation for sighted and non-sighted at least for non-theistic meditation. Finally, if we do have such a thing as a soul, then so do dogs, cats, anything with a nervous system, in my humble opinion. Please keep up the podcasts. Thank you very much, Peter. We will come back to meditation. I want this podcast to be a vehicle for exploring self-care and wellness. And meditation is something that you can do irrespective of your belief or non-belief in a creator. So it should be something of interest to a very wide range of people and how we as blind people can meditate and what the benefits are. Now, we've received a number of responses from people who've asked me not to read their contributions because they're worried about being identified, but they wanted me to know that the podcast means a lot to them. And I'm grateful for that. I'm sad that they feel unable to express themselves, even anonymously. But of course, I respect that. We've got one that's sort of in the middle who said, I could read selections from the email, but they didn't want their name identified. And I respect that, of course. I can tell you it is a listener from Ireland who says, Hi, Jonathan. I would describe myself as a quiet atheist. I've come to the conclusion that in reality, there is no God overruling everything. I did so, believe it or not while reading Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, but it was a process I've been going through for several years. And yes, I did have a pretty powerful forgiveness experience, which I understood as a quiet conversion experience, so that for a while I became more faithful, prayed more often, etc. Whilst at the same time, I was understanding that so much of what we believed was based on our conditioning and on our internalization of what we were getting from our environment, cultures, and our peers, etc. One of the things holding back people is lack of self esteem, the belief that they are not as good as their teachers, superiors, etc. And then, when they get negative experiences, this reinforces that low self esteem and consequently increases their resentment. Resentment leads to anger, which is most directed on oneself because you're caught in your own vibes, your own bubble, as what you get back is what you emit. You would know all this, but one has to go through things to learn to indeed think critically, to be open, to read a book as if you've never read it before each time you read it. I'm blessed with a good memory, so that helps me. Thus, the Bible should be understood as a great work of literature, in the same way as Shakespeare is understood. Thanks for the email, listener from Ireland. And the subject of forgiveness is a fascinating thing. I strongly believe in forgiveness, mainly because forgiveness helps you to move on with your own life. That doesn't mean that you have to forget what someone has done to you if someone has genuinely harmed you and that you should let them back into your life. But forgiveness is a process of letting go. And for those interested in this subject, I wrote A blog post, maybe two or three years ago, it's actually on the Mosin Consulting blog about forgiveness following some abuse that I'd suffered at the School for the Blind. And if you're interested in that, you can search the Mosin Consulting website for the term forgiveness, and I'm sure that blog post will pop right up. And that concludes The Blind Side. I think that I have done my best to provide a fair representation of the comments that we've received. And so unless there's some earth-shattering, really interesting comment on this topic, I'm going to close it. Because while it's been interesting, we've spent a lot of time on it, and I don't want the whole podcast forevermore to be hijacked by it. But I appreciate everybody listening. By and large, most people have been very tolerant And I'm grateful for that. And I knew that we would get some pushback that may not be very pleasant. But if it's helped at least one person in their search for answers and their explorations, I'm delighted to have done it. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting, on the web at mosin.org.